This is the Bible Book Club. I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. And we're in the book of 1 Samuel. Welcome to the club. In episode two, Hannah sang a song of joy and she praised the power of God and thanked him for giving her Samuel and curing her infertility. God then called Samuel into ministry, called him by name. Double double name. Just the same as he did with Moses and with Abraham many years before him. And Eli was chastised and also judged by God because he failed to stop his sinning sons, Phineas and Hopni. In the next two episodes, we're going to cover chapters four through seven, and they are part of what is called the Ark narrative because they tell the story of the Philistines' victory over Israel and their possession of the Ark of the Covenant. Samuel is going to be absent from these chapters. The focus is on the failure of Eli and his sons as spiritual leaders. The loss of the Ark of the Covenant was a visible symbol of Israel's broken covenant with God. In chapter 7, Samuel is reintroduced to lead Israel to repentance and deliverance from the Philistines. Now, the first scene in chapter four begins with a note from the author that Samuel's doing his job. He is spreading the word of God. However, what happens next implies that Israel was not listening because God does not go with Israel into battle, despite their attempts to manipulate him. Chapter four, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. Who are the Philistines? The first mention of the Philistines occurred in Genesis, so they've been around for a long time. Abraham was the first visitor to their territory that we know of. They're mentioned 191 times in the Bible and 84 of those in 1 Samuel. In the last season of BBC, the book of Judges, the Philistines were Samson's undoing. They were a powerful enemy to the Israelites, even though they were not originally Canaanites. So we hear a lot about, you know, God wanting them to wipe out the Canaanites, but they weren't originally Canaanites, the Philistines. They're thought to be descendants of seafaring people or the Egyptians, according to Genesis 10, 14 and 1 Chronicles 1, 12. They settled on the southern coast of Canaan and intermarried with the Canaanites. They were known for their military expertise and advanced weaponry. Now, the Philistines were organized into five city-states, and we learned about this with Samson, called the Philistine Pentopolis. They, the cities were named Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath, and Gaza. Each city-state had its own king and administrative structure, but they formed a formidable military alliance. The Philistines were polytheistic and engaged in all kinds of cult behavior. Their gods included Dagon, Baal, and Ashtoreth. The Philistines will be one of David's most persistent adversaries, and Goliath was one of them. In this scene, the Israelites are about to attack the Philistines. It can be assumed it was a fight to gain territory. Some things never change. They are still fighting over territory in Gaza today. It appears that the Israelites failed to consult with God prior to this attack. The lack of spiritual leadership is a theme in the Ark narrative. The result of the wicked leadership at Shiloh is defeat and suffering. And Eli is going to be held ultimately responsible. Scene one. The consequences of forgetting God are death and defeat. 
Continuing on in verse 1, the Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. When we forget to include God in our decisions, we're taking a chance that our decision is outside the will of God. And when we choose to move outside of God's will, we have to expect consequences. This is not the first time the Israelites have gone into battle without consulting God. Way back in Numbers 14, after learning they were being sentenced to 40 years in the wilderness, the Israelites scramble and try to appease God by doing what he originally asked them to do, but they didn't consult him this time. In this case, the Israelites realize their mistake, but their method is the exact same as their ancestors who died in the wilderness. Rather than repent and consult God with a willingness to submit in obedience to his will, They again decide to take matters into their own hands by carrying the ark into the battle, as if they could physically control God into protecting them by moving the ark. It was a superstitious move, and it it treated the ark as if it were a magic wand. They behave like the cultish cultures around them instead of standing out as God's people. Well, God is not happy. And in this next scene, he sends a sobering message. If Israel refuses to act like his people, they will lose his presence. Scene two, the consequences of trying to control God. Verse four. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all the shouting in the Hebrew camp? The Israelites really want to win. So they try to recreate the strategy of past victories, specifically Israel's victory over Jericho in chapter six of the book of Joshua, where God had commanded the Israelites to march behind the ark for seven days. And then with a shout, the walls collapsed. It didn't, it's not going to work this time. You can't do it again unless God tells you to do it. So what was so special about the ark that they would think that this would help? God gave Moses very specific instructions for the building and purpose of the ark in Exodus 25, which was season two, episode 18 of Bible Book Club. This is what he said. Exodus 25, verse 10, have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They're not to be removed. Then put in the ark of the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking 
looking toward the cover, place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Why was the ark so special? It's where God met with them. The ark was the most visible sign of God's presence and therefore the holiest object in the tabernacle, also called the tent of meeting and later the temple. It was also the visible sign of the covenant because it was the place where a copy of the Israelites covenant with God was kept along with a sample of manna and Aaron's rod. Now, the ark was a wooden rectangular box, less than four feet long, covered with gold. All items located in the holy and most holy place were gold, and items in the courtyard were bronze. The poles were necessary because the ark was so holy it could not be touched. And we'll learn in 2 Samuel chapter 6 that death will result if it is touched. Now, the ark had three purposes to carry God's law, the tablets, the stone tablets. It was also a place for atonement when they broke the law, that atonement cover Heather read about. Lastly, it was to provide a place for God to dwell among his people. On top of the ark was the atonement cover with the two facing cherubim. Above the cover, in between the cherubim, God's presence would meet with them. The man-made cherubim and the ark were symbolic representations of the paradise lost. They were objects and had no power. The first place cherubim are mentioned is in Genesis 3, and this is why it was a reminder. Cherubim were placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden to guard the entrance of the Tree of Life, from which Adam and Eve had been banished. In a symbolic way, the man-made cherubim on the ark guarded the space between them where God's presence resided. Everything was made to point back to what they had lost so they would look forward to the hope of what they would get again. The only reason God could meet in their presence between the cherubim was through the atonement of their sin. Every day the Israelites broke the laws located in the ark. We all do. Sin had entered the world in the fall. We all sin. And every year the high priest would atone for that sin on the day of atonement through a ceremony of sacrifice on the atonement cover on top of the ark. The atonement of sin, along with the purification of the temple, was God's reminder to them of the holiness necessary for a relationship with him. That atonement was laborious for the Israelites. All that sacrifice, remember, we covered in Leviticus and pointed to a need for a savior whose sacrifice could cover all sin forever. The ark was supposed to stay in the room called the most holy place in the tabernacle. To take the ark out of the tabernacle and march it around as if it were a weapon of God's power was a total misunderstanding of God's intention for the ark to be a sacred space for their relationship with him. Remember, when Joshua marched the ark around, they hadn't set up the tabernacle at Shiloh yet. Now, it was a man-made box, and without God's presence, the ark was nothing but a receptacle containing the tablets of the law, which they were ironically breaking. The Israelites were trying to control God the way the Canaanites tried to manipulate their gods with silly, superstitious 
tactics. Now, if all of that was a lot for you and it was confusing, it really was a summary of so much of the first five books of the Bible. So go back and start in the beginning and especially hit up Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers because that's where all these laws and the purpose of the tabernacle was laid out. Continuing in verse six, when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp. They said, oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines, be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. The irony here is that the Philistines have more fear and respect and seem to remember more of God's history than his people, the Israelites, do. The Philistines fear the presence of the Ark and that loud cry of the Israelites they hear. However, Instead of crumbling, as in the victory at Jericho, in this case, the Philistines fight harder. 30,000 men died. The ark was captured and Eli's sons were killed on the same day, just as prophesied. Now, the outcome was clear. Their defeat was God's will. He was not with them as he had been at Jericho. Not that they had asked him to be. From the high priesthood down, the Israelites had done as they saw fit. And for that, there were consequences. God's people should be different. And that difference should be clear in their relationship with him, which was laid out to them ad infinitum by Moses. But the Israelites wanted to put God in a box that they controlled, the ark. They forgot a principle we too should remember. God is not here for us. We are here for him. We are made in his image. We cannot make him into what we want. We cannot put him in a box as the Israelites try to do. To visibly demonstrate this principle, God used the box, the ark, as a symbol of what they had lost, their relationship with him. He would not be with them if they did not obey his ways. The Philistines now controlled the ark, but not God. The Israelites needed to listen to Samuel. Samuel needed more authority to make them hear. The death of Hophni and Phinehas, the heirs to the high priesthood, was one barrier out of the way for a new priesthood through Samuel. Only one more barrier remained. Scene three, the death of Eli and the birth of Ichabod. Verse 12, that same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the men entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. This is such a sad scene. Eli is old weak, overweight, and almost blind. He can't even stand. He sits by the side of the road. Fear and dread fill his heart and probably a lot of regret for what may be happening under his leadership. After all, he is the one that is a direct descendant of Aaron. How could he have fallen so short of God's will for the priesthood? But it's too late for him. Judgment is upon Israel how bad will it be? 
His sons are not even on his list of concern. Finally, in fear, his priority becomes clear. God should have been first. How bad will it be? Eli fears the worst because the Ark of the Covenant is vulnerably exposed to the enemy. The covenant detailed within the Ark is cracked and crumbling, and the relationship forged by the covenant between God and Israel may be severed forever. Such are the consequences for Israel and for Eli for allowing everyone, including his own sons, to do as they saw fit. Verse 14, Eli heard the outcry and asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it to this very day. Eli asked, What happened to my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died for he was an old man and he was heavy and he had led Israel 40 years. The severity of God's judgment came crashing down on Eli. He, of all people, as the high priest, was most familiar with God's law and most responsible. Eli knew the promises of obeying God. Deuteronomy 11.22 If you carefully observe all these commands I am giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, and to hold fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. Every place where you set your foot will be yours. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the Euphrates River to the Mediterranean Sea. No one will be able to stand against you. The Lord your God, as he promised you, will put the terror and fear of you on the whole land wherever you go. The Philistines did not fear them because Israel did not walk in obedience and hold fast to God. And Eli would have been very familiar with the consequences of disobeying God. Leviticus 26, 14. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror. Wasting diseases and fever will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. The fall of Israel was so horrific that it shook Eli to the core. He fell physically as he had been falling spiritually for years. The author's mention of Eli's weight as contributing to his death was very intentional. It implied that Eli was overweight because he too had sinned as his sons had by eating the sacrificial meat that was the Lord's. With the death of Hophni and Phinehas and now Eli, the path was made open for God to appoint Samuel to the priesthood. Verse 19, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, don't despair, you've given birth to a son, but she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the Ark of God 
and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. A death and a birth occur on the same day. With the death of Eli and his sons, Samuel's prophecy in chapter 3 is fulfilled. 1 Samuel 3, verse 11, And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. The day ends with a grandson for Eli named Ichabod. Ichabod means no glory or where is your glory? The answer to that question is the glory has departed. God's glory had departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured. Now, every time this child's name was called out, it would remind every Israelite around the area that they had lost God's glory. What a sad name. That would make me so so sad. sad. And the age of this orphan child, because his mother and father had both died, would forever remind people of the number of years that had passed since the glory had departed from Israel. This was a legacy for which Ichabod's father and grandfather bear responsibility. Phineas and Hophni and their father Eli could have, should have, led Israel in the ways of God. What might Ichabod's name have been had Eli taken more control over his sinful sons? Surely Eli had the greatest responsibility, for the prophet in 229 questioned him specifically saying, Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? The high priest is dead, the ark is gone, and archaeological evidence suggests that Shiloh was destroyed by the Philistines. The Israelites' national humiliation is complete. They have reached their lowest point since their captivity in Egypt. Ironically, their defeat was at the hands of a people descended from Egypt. The Philistines are ecstatic. They carry the ark to one of their capital cities, Ashdod, treating it as if it were a magic charm or a trophy that they can add to their collection. They too need to learn a lesson. Scene four, the Philistines can't control God either. Chapter five, after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they arose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. Okay. I have to tell you my, the thoughts running through my head when I read this part. I kind of feel like God is up there and, um, you know, he's got friends and he's kind, he kind of thinks this is funny that he's knocking Dagon over. And, you know, nothing's as funny as alone as it is with somebody else. So he's got, he's called in a couple of the archangels, you know, <laughs> and they're laughing with him too. And it's almost like they're, they're playing a video game. Watch what I'm going to do next. Oh, I'm going to get that guy. And it, 
Anyway, that's just the scene in my head. All right. Dagon was the principal god of the Philistines. Placing the Ark next to Dagon would be like lining up your regional trophies next to your national championship trophy. To the Philistines, the Ark was proof that Dagon deserved to be top dog. They had fought and defeated the Israelites. Therefore, their God was stronger than Israel's. God could not allow that. So he knocked Dagon off the shelf. The way God did it was symbolic. The first time was just a humiliation and could be coincidental. The second time, like the second Philistine defeat of the Israelites in chapter four, was more ominous. Decapitation and cutting off hands were common practices in ancient warfare. Warriors kept the heads and hands of men slain as proof of their victory. Gross. God was sending a message and it didn't end there. God wasn't going to allow the Philistines to dominate him or the Ark of the Covenant. Scene five, the Lord's heavy hand sends the Ark on a tour of terror. Dagon's loss of his hands was a threat that haunted the Philistines going forward. Because while Dagon lost his hands, God's hand came down upon them heavily. Verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. Ashdod is the first major Philistine city that cannot hold up under the heavy hand of God. They were afflicted with tumors. So the people of Ashdod sent the ark on a tour and passed it on to the people of Gath. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. Gath is the second major city that cannot hold up under the heavy hand of God. They too were afflicted with tumors and it throws them into a great panic. So the Ark tour continued and the people of Gath passed the Ark to Ekron. As the Ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the Ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the Ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and all our people people for death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. So Akron is the third major Philistine city that cannot hold up under the heavy hand of God. They too were afflicted with tumors and death filled the city with terror. They recognized the source and the solution. The tour of terror needs to come to an end. They want to send the ark back to the Israelites or else the God of the Israelites will kill all of them with this plague. In other words, they may have been able to defeat the Israelite people, but they cannot defeat the Israelite God. What should be clear to the Israelites and the Philistines is that no one can control God simply by moving the ark around. You cannot put God in a box. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome, welcome to, to the, the club. club. 
New episodes drop every Monday. And get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.